There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Legendary crooner and songwriter Paul Anka celebrates his 80th birthday today. I spoke with him in 2015 about his prolific career from puppy love to put your head on my shoulder and even writing my way for Frank Sinatra. Hey, Mr. Anka, pleasure to meet you. You call me Paul and you'll really meet me. Wow, all right. I do want to get into some of your hits that everyone recognizes you for, you know, Diana and Puppy Love and all the rest. But sure. um, but first, you know, what a lot of people probably don't realize, maybe more casual music fans, was that you wrote so many songs for, you know, big hits for, for other people. Tell me about when you wrote uh, the lyrics for My Way, which everyone remembers for Sinatra, but those were your words. Right. <laughs> Well, what happened really, when I got lucky as a kid, you know, I was writing kid songs. Uh, pop music was in its infancy stage, and I, I was hopefully writing the way every teenager thought, indigenous to that world. And it evolved from that to where I realized after about a year in the business that to separate yourself from the others in, in a business that would change, you needed the gravitas of, you know, being the producer, being the writer, so that you had something to fall back on. Thus, you know, I worked at a local newspaper. I had a writing talent, so I really worked at that. And what I started doing at a young age, you know, Buddy Holly, who was my friend, I wrote It Doesn't Matter Anymore for him, and I wrote for mm-hmm. Connie Francis and The Longest Day and The Tonight Show theme. And I started to establish myself as a writer, which I felt was very, very important. And through the years, you know, after I met the Beatles in Europe and then my agent went and brought them over here, everything changed. We were thrown off the radio in a sense, but because I was the writer, I survived it. You know, I was recording in Italian and German and uh, having hits over here still. And that evolved into, at a young age, being the only guy that was kind of uh, asked to come out to Vegas by the boys and work with the Rat Pack, (laughs) where I got a lot of my training in a very natural form, you know, no technology. Thus, uh, knowing Sinatra, as I did all those years, when I met up with him in Florida where I was working, he told me he was quitting show business was a huge shock to me and many others and that he was doing just one more album and he was doing it with my producer don costa who i introduced him to Mm -hmm. and what happened was i was just moved by the fact that he was quitting i'd never written for him even though he had asked me but i was scared to death you know who knows what he would have done if i gave him something he didn't like so uh, i came back to new york and i wrote it in six hours and flew to vegas and gave it to him uh you know i was old enough at 28 to write it but i was too young to sing it, and that was my feeling. I didn't think that it was appropriate for someone in their 20s, not that you couldn't equate with it, but that you needed somebody of some vintage, as he was, that was kind of wrapping it up. Right, because the and, lyrics uh, are very much, you know, hindsight, looking back, I've done it all kind of a thing, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's awesome. So uh, right. so do you remember, I mean, I, actually, I think this is this year marks his, his centennial, actually, I think, because... This is it. Yeah. yeah, this is the big one, and there's celebrations, in a sense, uh, 
around the world. It'll culminate here in, in December, obviously, and it's a lot of it's tied to my way. And uh, this is the key year to a great artist, an amazing artist and stylist and, you know, someone who I thought there was nobody like. And that's why I got involved in the Michael Bublé life when I sat with him and realized that he could continue that music, not emulate Sinatra. And that's why I produced the first album and got Michael going uh, with my friends David Foster and uh, to carry on that important part of the American songbook. Yeah, definitely. Did uh, Did Sinatra ever, you know... Is there a point where they ever sort of thank you or Tom Jones with She's a Lady or anything like that? Do they ever oh, come yeah. after you and yeah, say, they were, No, they were, always, they were always very gracious to, you know, in embracing what I did. You know, it was such a big hit for Sinatra. He, he came back two years later because it was a hit and said, Write me another one. And I wrote <laughs> Let Me Try Again, which was <laughs> the follow up to it. And Tom was, you know, I spent a lot of time with him and knew him and he asked me to write and I wrote it. And they, they were always very acknowledging and. Very gracious in terms of my contribution to whatever it was, and that—that's pretty much all I needed, you know. All right. Well, we've talked about what you've done for other people, but let's talk about you know, your stuff too. Kick me back to let's do Diana. Let's start with that. Well, yeah. Was there a time where you were sort of maybe riding around in the car when you first heard that on the radio, and you were like, "Man, I'm a star." Uh, I didn't think it was a star. I just couldn't believe it. You know, <laughs> I was a kid. Uh, as I said, pop music was really in its infancy stage, and it was overwhelming. Yeah. Because there really wasn't a lot of others. You know, that Philadelphia crowd came a, a tad later. But when I first heard it on the radio, it's, you know, today we're all kind of jaded, and these kids today are jaded, and they're on these shows, and, you know, before they burp, they've made $50 million, and they can't really handle it. <laughs> you know, back then, you got a great family around you. Nobody was really picking up on us, Presley and all of us, other than our little fan base. But when you hear it on the radio, driving around or whatever, hey, it's a jolt. You know, it's, wow, I can't believe this. And you're very appreciative of it because it was new. It was new to everybody, kids so young making it. You know, unlike today, every time you turn around, it's on television, it's, there's a contest in every shopping mall. I mean, you're dealing with a whole different moving part and dynamic. But it was very moving back then. I was very, very moved by it. Definitely. And then um, moving forward after that, I'm pretty sure, I mean, you had a bunch of other hits in between, but yeah. your next huge, huge number one was uh, was Lonely Boy, right? Yeah, that was, you know, it was all kind of indigenous to the lifestyle that I had. You know, I was all of a sudden thrown into this life. I was traveling all over the world, playing to thousands of people, stadiums, all that stuff. And then I'd go right back to my room because I couldn't leave. They were outside your, uh, you know, they're outside your hotel, they're at airports, and you're all by yourself. You know, you're alone. And it kind of hit home to me, whether it was conscious or subliminal. And it came out in terms of Lonely Boy, which really, you know, everything I was writing, my crowd, that young crowd, that young demographic, could identify with what I was saying. And, you know, I would pick up those bits and pieces when I would sit with fans and see what their life was about. So Lonely Boy was very much about life that I was living, and it hit home with a lot of guys, frankly. Right, and then and then obviously, my, probably my personal favorite, um, probably one of the greatest love songs ever, "Put Your Head on My Shoulder." Yeah, that was my favorite too, actually. Oh, was, really? Um, yeah. If you ask me, of all the fifty stuff, you know, that was that was the turning point for me as a writer in the construction of the song. It was very poignant for me because back then, you know, disc jockeys were your buddies, and you'd go do events for them, you'd do favors, and. You know, you're standing on a stage at some, you know, sock hop or a high school. And back then, it was a whole big thing just to hold a girl. You know, there's no stuff going on today. <laughs> so that the whole thing was to get a head on a shoulder, whether it was in the movie house or on a gymnasium floor. 
and I would notice it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so risque. And I, <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and um, it just hit me I, as I watched it, and I went home to the hotel one night, and I just, I just nailed it. And I think I called Annette, who I was dating at the time, and may she rest in peace. And I, I said, geez, I've just written this great song, because I'd written Puppy Love for her and I. But right. when I wrote that, I called her, and I sang it to her over the phone, and it was... Uh, Real turning point song, but and my friend Bobby Darren, uh, he and I were really close, and you know we were always vying as friendly as we were for the charts, and you know he beat me out of number one with Mac the Knife, so that was uh, another compounded effect of that song. Oh, is "Put Your Head on the sh- My Shoulder" the one that finally got got back at him after Mac the Knife? It was at the same time. We were we were like number one on a lot of charts together, and I think <laughs> it was number one, number two, number two, number one. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, that dastardly Bobby Darren always taking my top spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, and, you he, know, he and I, he and I were like, we felt the change coming, and it was always a concern with me because I figured it wasn't going to really last because you knew evolution of life and what have you. Sure. And that's why we kind of aimed ourselves at that whole swing vibe. You know, there was no Hendrix yet, which is one right. of my favorite album experience. But prior to all that, it was about the Rat Pack, and when mm-hmm. I got the call to go join that group out there at twenty twenty one, it was just. A big turning point for me and Bobby also started in in New York, but I was the youngest to really make that evolution into that. And that's kind of what saved me because all my chops as an entertainer, I learned from those guys. Wow, yeah. Well, I mean, what what sort of things do you think specifically did you learn from them? What is it just how to carry yourself, how to, a certain swagger, how to deal with publicity? Well, it was all that. Huh? It was, you know, you know, it's mileage. It's it's like anything. I mean, what you do, for instance, you know, you remember those first few hours when you start you you get to do the do and you get to do the miles because none of us in life you know is successful in what you're doing what i'm doing none of us are born sophisticated you're given this gift or this talent but when success comes you're sitting there most of the time saying geez how do i deal with this you know right and you got to find your own vibe and find your own place and find your own rhythm and your own comfort and you're crawling along this journey of success and then one day you hope to be wise enough to make the right decisions and get the miles under you to feel comfortable in what you do with a passion. So that that's what happened to me with them. I, I just watched them. I was, you know, you have to do something and continue to do it. So I'm on that stage in front of that crowd and, you know, a mob driven kind of entity. And you, you just, yeah, you learn the swagger, you learn what not to do technically. Cause you have to remember there's no technology. I mean, today these kids going, I don't know who the hell's singing. <laughs> let alone on stage. Right. But back then, it was one mic in front of the band, and you got a mic, and you better be good. That's it. I mean, nothing's going to save you. <laughs> and you learn, and you learn, and you do the mileage. You do two shows a night for six weeks in a row. You know, half these kids couldn't handle two shows in a row. Right. Unless they're lip-syncing, which most of them are, you know. Yeah, what do you think, um, speak to that a little bit. Do you, What do you think of, um, you know, uh, the importance of being able to write songs like you did, but also perform and actually perform on the stage. You know, I, have we lost a little bit of that? I mean, obviously, there's some new artists that, that still do it. It's not a blanket statement, but, you know, yeah. like, have we lost the, have some of today's stars lost the craft of actually being able to write their own songs? No, I think you, you when you look at it proportionately, you know, when I first met the Beatles, they said, you know, we want to do what you're doing. You, you write your own stuff, produce your own stuff, and that whole trend started around the Beatles and British Invasion. You know, mm-hmm. there were a couple out there that wrote their stuff pretty much the rhythm and blues acts. But, right. you know, today, you know, there, there's some talented people out there. I mean, you, you look at Adele, you know, her contribution, which is very, very true and very organic and good. Uh, even Sting and Elton John, there's a host of people making great music. You know, oh, they're yeah. not up there lip-syncing it, et cetera. 
And I don't, you know, I'm not sitting around knocking fellow artists. I don't do that. But it's not my thing where the consumer, you know, is buying, you know, a CD and then want, wants to get the live vibe when they go to a show. And you're restricted when you're doing that because it's not really true emotion. You're just kind of a prisoner to what you're hearing. But when you get down to it, you look at the great artists that are out there. And you look at these, even a lot of young artists, they're writing good songs and well-constructed, and, and they're out there, and they've learned from the best. You know, they've done their homework, yeah. and they've created it, and it's it's home for them. And that's what's important. I can't really say that there's, you know, you listen to a Coldplay album, you know, as a producer, I listen to it, and it's perfect. You know, there's a lot of stuff in that production that I love and how it's done and well-produced, et cetera, and the list could go on. And there's a lot of garbage out there that I don't you know, ear candy that, you know, God bless them. <laughs> the technology's created them, you know. They come to me say, uh, can you give me some advice? I say, yeah, learn, learn to be an accountant because they're going to be gone, you know. Right. And that that's okay. They get a shot. They make some money and blah, blah, blah. But the true artists will continue to uh, sustain themselves, and they're out there. They're definitely out there. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of them, and those are the ones that last. They really do. Without um, doubt. Yeah. And uh, but it's fascinating to me that you know here you are this this really talented songwriter, but you could also tap into sort of the the young imagination. You know, even people that they don't have to be, you don't have to know a lot about you know the art of of music, but you still with let's say like something like Puppy Love. How did you sort of tap into what young minds were craving? Well, that was pretty obvious. You know, you got to remember you look at the whole sociological situation in this country, not Europe, which was far advanced, you know, there, there's so many taboos. I mean, you know, here I am with a you know, bunch of, you know, great rock and roll stars going from city to city. You couldn't bring the girls to the hotel. And, <laughs> you know, the, the whole system and where we were at in this country and sexuality, as you know, it was a, a pretty, pretty shut down window. And, right. you know, when you, you, you had to hang with fans and, you know, I love did it, did it, and my mommy won't let go to the theater. And, <laughs> and I went through it. You know, I'd get a date and then I'd go to the theater and you just want to get your arm around and maybe inside the sweater, you know, if you're lucky. But everybody was educated on the fact that you don't do this, you don't do that. And <laughs> you're too young and it's just a puppy love. And I said, oh, you know, bells go off. <laughs> and what I did was I just sat down and wrote about it, and part of the experience was Annette, yep. you know, who was a Disney property and very popular, and she and I were very close, and they didn't want us close. And, you know, I kept hearing, Mr. Disney doesn't want you near him, and it's a <laughs> puppy love, and blah, 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 and I said, okay, right. <laughs> let's take the lemons and make lemonade. So I wrote puppy love. A lot of people yeah. also don't know that your daughter, Amanda, is married to Jason Bateman. That's a fun, yeah. little, that's a fun little trivia fact we stumbled upon. <laughs> well, he's a, you know, I spoke to him uh, yesterday because he's a huge baseball nut, you know, and there's right. some great baseball, obviously, and... I think the right team won. It just but ended, yeah, great, World Series last night, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he, he's a great guy, and he's very talented, and, you know, my kids are very important to me, and, you know, you're as happy as your unhappiest child, and <laughs> they're in a great groove, and he's just a talented guy, and all my son-in-laws are very cool, but, you know, he's somebody I see because he lives in L.A., the rest live in, in Europe, and they just had another little baby, so they got two kids. In fact, I'm taking one of them to Hawaii for... Uh, for Christmas, so nice. it's good. The good thing is he's not affected by it all, and he's very talented, and he's going to go on and do some great stuff. Right, definitely. Well, you know, you've, you've done it all, and now you're sort of at this point where you can sort of look back and sing my way and have that gravitas you were talking about that you said you didn't think you had back when you wrote it. Um, so now when you get to sing something like that and you look back yeah. over your career, you had your song, You Were My Destiny. Does it feel like this? you were destined to do this? 
Well, I, I certainly felt at an early age that, you know, I was destined to do it or, you know, gifted to do it. I didn't know how long it would last. And, you know, it, you know, I live a regular life away from it. And that's what's kept me kind of sane, frankly. I didn't really mm-hmm. absorb a lot of the, <laughs> the bad habits of my Vegas crowd. The wor- uh, work-life and, balance. <laughs> yes, and balance is everything. So, you know, when I'm on stage now, the comfort zone and and the kind of emotional triggers are different. You know, I am older and I'm a certain journey of life where I've, you know, I'm very much in touch with my body and I think everything brain driven. You sit there and go, damn, I'm still doing this and and look at this audience. You know, whether I'm here, I'm over in Europe, uh, I'm going to Asia, go to South America, look at what they're reacting and how they're reacting and, you know, how I'm personally in touch with myself to feel a different emotion looking at faces that were 16, 17, and 18, and now depending where I am, they're in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and, you know, saying to myself, Jesus, I got eight more hours of songs I can do, but (laughs) two hours is enough, and my way's hitting me differently than when I stood up at 28, 29, 30, just saying, oh, I wrote it for Frank, and, you know, I'm just doing it. You know, I'm doing it now for him and for me, and there's a lot of equation that goes on, you know, but, you know, very lethargic at some point, you know, when you sit there and say, again, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it works, you know, and uh, I do it because you're kind of addicted to it, because every mm-hmm. time you think, of, well, I'll do nothing, you get very much afraid, because anyone that I've... Uh, socialize with or know in any business, frankly, not only mine, even Sinatra. Right. You know, I go back to him sitting there with electric trains and flowers. I'm going, what, what's this? <laughs> you know, I don't want to be there doing that. You know, I, I want to keep doing it because we've got an audience. It's moving me differently. Yeah. You know, my sense of delivery is different and my audience's reaction is different. And we do X amount of days a year all over the world. And, uh, it's just something you can't give up if you've got a passion for it. Definitely. And speaking of those lyrics that you keep coming back to and mentioning, uh, mm. looking back, are there times you, you bit off more than you can chew or regrets you have a few? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, listen, life isn't one straight line. You know, it, it, everybody's got their garbage every day, you know, <laughs> loosely. I say that. But no, 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 no. There absolutely are. I think the big key is uh, the less mistakes that you make and what you learn from them. Because life just goes on that way. It's how you handle it. Do you have the backbone? And I throw away my rearview mirror. I mean, I can't live in the past. I look at, you know, how grateful I am for all this good stuff. And, you know, you take those chances. My biggest regret was, I thought, would be Rock Swings, which was a big album for me a few years ago on the heels of the Buble. You know, where I took all these rock songs and just... uh, made them my own and said, this is either going to destroy me or get me a new audience. And we put a lot of money into the, the authenticity and the integrity of it down to the microphones, the band, and we pulled it off. But yeah. that was one regret that I thought, you know, I, I, when I produced it, I produced it for critics and, and uh, DJs because, you know, they really know and get it. If you gave them something good, they're not going to turn on it because they're going to not be able to look in the mirror about it, you know. Definitely. Well, you uh, you ate it up and spit it out. So, uh, what would be your way if it's my way? You, you know, you wrote it many years ago. Now you've had a lot of time to reflect on it, and you keep singing mm. about it. What's sort of that takeaway? What is your way? 
Well, my way today is just uh, really never letting go of the integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, my way today is being very truthful to yourself and keeping the integrity of what you're doing all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty much how I look at everything. I, I, I want transparency and I want honesty because the world is just in a different tilt today. And I've been around it for a lot of years. And I'm very concerned as to the state of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get drawn into anything that becomes uh, compromising or dangerous in any way because it's all potentially there. You know, this is a great country, and I come back to it from all these trips. But right now we have a lot of challenges. So my way, you know, I would hope would spill over to others to where they would keep the honesty, the transparency, the integrity of what they're doing, you know, for the betterment of making a difference. So, you know, I've done this a long time. I've been successful at it. And, you know, to me, my way is to do it the right way and not compromise or let people talk you into stuff that's kind of devious. That's a that's a great message, and I think it's a perfect spot to leave it. So, Paul Anka, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good questions. Good interview. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.